have some visitors today uh, that's sitting in the back here. Uh, some friends of mine from Venezuela, Eduardo and Lady and um, Laura, their, their daughter. Uh, they were uh, they they worked with my parents in Venezuela, and uh, they are uh, here in the states and uh, they're thinking about starting a church and. Uh, so we're excited that they're visiting with us here. Gracias. Uh, we, we were, uh, for some reason, uh, he was, a, was the invited speaker at, at a camp there in, in Venezuela, in Blanco Lugar. And for some reason, I was there too. And, uh, of course, they had him in the um, place of, of honor, uh, to kind of like the prophet's chamber or something, you know. And, and for some reason, they, they wanted to honor me too. And... Uh, so we were sleeping in the same same room, and uh, the 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 room had a uh, had a guest rat that would come every night, and he would he would run on our uh, on the ropes of the hammock, and he would jump back and forth between the ropes and so forth, and and then take off. And um, at that point is when I realized that it's not good if they want to honor you. When somebody says we're, we want to give you the the place of honor, you say no, no, I'm good. Uh, I mean, it was a big old rat. It looked like a cat jumping around from a hammock. Uh, and uh, but that was an experience and a crazy thing to be uh, having Eduardo here in the States with us. Uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. We'll look at verse 1 and verse 2. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look at this text that you, your spirit would illumine our minds. Father, we need your spirit working in us through your word to conform us to the image of your Son, and this is not something we can do of our own will. This is not something we can do through rhetoric, through, through any type of um, tricks. But we depend on you. We humble ourselves and we come before you begging that you please do that work in our lives. Father, there might be some here that have never accepted Christ as their Savior. They have a lot of Bible knowledge, but um, they've never had a moment where they've put their faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and had a moment of, conversion. I pray that, that today will be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are going to be looking at now the letter to the Ephesians. And uh, we have to answer the question, how does this fit in the development that we've, we're doing from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20? Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, we finished looking at the Great Commission. To, to go and make disciples of all uh, the nations, to, even to the, uh, to the ends of the earth, as it says there in, in Acts. How does Ephesians fit into that? Because uh, we were there looking in, in Matthew, and we noticed that uh, some people tried to get around the Great Commission. And they'll argue that uh, the Great Commission, it was really just given to the disciples, and the Great Commission kind of just stopped when the disciples died. And so we, we don't have to do the Great Commission. We are just supposed to come to church. And uh, that was just supposed to be something the, the disciples, the apostles did. But that's not something for us. 
Others argued that uh, they, they go from a more pragmatic point of view. It says we, we can't all be involved in missions. If we all get involved in missions, then, then who's going to be at the church? We can't all be involved in missions. If everybody is going out, then who's going to support the missionaries? Uh, so obviously not everybody should be involved in missions. And so people put up silly arguments like that. Uh, no one here would dare say a thing like that. That's silly arguments that other churches put. But obviously there's people that somehow think that um, the church or churches shouldn't be involved in missions. And from Matthew, the, the point was very clear to go and make disciples. And then we jumped over to Jonah, and we saw that in Jonah that missions isn't really just a New Testament thing. Rather, it's something that God has a heart for the nations, and God wants to see the nations repent and, and have a relationship with him. As we looked at Jonah, we saw that, uh, humanly speaking, God went through tremendous efforts. Humanly speaking, God went through tremendous efforts to get Jonah to Nineveh. I mean, he did all that he could to not go to Nineveh. In fact, when he did go and preach, he just preached one day, and then he went and sat outside the city. In looking at the narrative there of Jonah, we notice that uh, the problem was not God's grace or God's mercy. There was sufficient mercy and there was sufficient grace for Nineveh. The problem was the preacher, wasn't it? He, he just didn't want to go. He just did not want to participate. He just did not want to be involved with what God was doing. And as a satire, you see it makes uh, uh, look ridiculous, Israel. Because Israel liked to have God, but did not want to act graciously like God. They wanted to claim that they loved God, but they did not want to love what God loves, which is the nations. Then we looked at Nahum, and Nahum 1 through 3 uh, it talks about how God is going to punish the wicked. I really thought after looking at Nahum 3 that there wasn't going to be anyone here at church today. Uh, they're like, boy, what a depressing chapter, and I'm very surprised that you guys decided to come back one more time and see if maybe things could get turned around a little bit. But Nahum, we saw he's going to judge the wicked. He's going to punish the wicked. It, and there's the message that God will punish the, the, the wicked, and so a person should hear that and repent. Well, unfortunately, many won't. Now, we have that message that God will destroy the wicked, and our responsibility is to go and preach that God is willing to save any. He gives the opportunity to anybody uh, to have saving faith and that they can have a relationship with God. Now, so how does Ephesians fit into this biblical theology I've been developing where uh, God loves the world, God's going to punish the wicked. There's a salvific message that can save all of humanity if they will put their faith in Jesus Christ. How, how in the world does this fit into with Ephesians? And to answer that question, we have to look at why does missions exist? Why is there a need for missions? Missions exist because there are places in the world where people are not worshiping and glorifying God. We'll repeat that one more time. Missions exist because there are places in the world where people are not worshiping and glorifying God. It, this statement is very purposeful because what I'm saying is that missions is not where 
rich nations help poorer nations get developed. That's, that's not the mission of the church. That, it, it's fine to do that. I, I think people should do that. Nations should do that. But that's not the mission of the church. Missions is not where educated countries go to uneducated countries and they establish schools and, and universities and, and so forth. That, I think education is great, uh, but that's not the mission of the church. Missions is not uh, where you go to the socially oppressed and you bring them liberation. There should be justice. But that's not the mission of the church. Missions is the responsibility of the local church and they exist uh, to go take the gospel to places where there's people not worshiping and glorifying God. Because, or since we worship God, we worship God, we value God more than our own comfort. Because we worship God, because we glorify God, we worship him more than our own comfort. And so we go. We worship God and we glorify God, so therefore we obey him more than our desires, more than what we desire. We worship God and uh, we glorify him and we want to teach others to also worship and glorify God. Uh, we do this, how, how do we do this? Well, first of all, with the gospel. You have to start with the gospel. If they don't understand their need of a Savior, if they don't have their faith in Jesus Christ, you have to start with the gospel. And once they're saved, then the next step is discipleship. Uh, John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he has a quote from John Stott, and he says, The highest of missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as it is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, Strong as an incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, but rather zeal, a burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. That is the motivating factor for missions. Why be involved in missions? Because there's places around the world that are not worshiping and glorifying God. Now, as we look at this, it's not just a New Testament phenomenon. God had sent prophets out, and he wanted the nations to be glad. You can see that in Psalm uh, 67, verse 4. Psalm uh, 60, uh, 67, 10, and 11. Uh, there's this notion that God is bringing salvation to the nations and that they can be glad. So how does Ephesians fit into this biblical theology of going to the nations and making disciples? Ephesians is the outworking of a missionary work. Paul traveled to a town where there was people not worshiping God, not glorifying God. And he went and he ministered there. He preached the gospel and people were saved. Not only did he do that, he visited them again, and then he sent them a letter to continue to develop them in their walk with the Lord. So we're looking at Ephesians for, from that lens as the obedience of Matthew 28, 19 through 20 as that development of discipling people to be strong, to be grounded in, in, in the word. It, it's, it's a missionary story. It's, it's a great story, and we're going to be looking at it. Now, here we are. We'll start with verse 1, and it says, uh, Paul. Now, just so that we're all on the same page, because we're going to be here for a little bit of time looking at Ephesians, um, I, I doubt that I can do it in six Sundays. Uh, because one Sunday is just going to get spent with just looking at Paul. So, uh, Paul, 
the world as Paul. And, and just so that we're not like you're thinking I'm talking about your neighbor, Paul, or some other person, we need to see just kind of who this Paul is. Uh, Paul's story has to be brought in from different passages. In Acts chapter 22, verse 3, uh, Paul's in Jerusalem. And he's there in Jerusalem to, to fulfill a promise of going to, to Jerusalem. And he's there. And all of a sudden, uh, the people started a riot. Some had thought that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple, which he hadn't. And uh, chapter 21, verse 37, it says that uh, uh, Paul had to get uh, arrested so that he could be protected. They kind of thought he was an Egyptian guy who was starting a revolt. Uh, Paul talks to the commander in Greek, and the guy was impressed that he could speak Greek. Uh, we see that uh, Paul starts to kind of address and, and describe who he is in uh, 21.39 and 22.3. So if we go to Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 22, in verse uh, 3, uh, he says that he is uh, born in Tarsus. Tarsus is a, a city that's about, uh, it's in the area of Turkey, and if you have maps in the back of your Bible, I would encourage you to go back there and try to find Tarsus um, as I'm talking. Tarsus is about 10 miles north of the Mediterranean. It's right on the river. It, it, it straddles the river, the river uh, uh, Sidus. And uh, it's about 40 miles south of the Sicilian Gates. The Sicilian Gates is the only pass that it goes through the Taurus Mountains. And it was a big area of commerce. It was also a city that was very well known for education. It rivaled with Athens and with Alexandria. In, in fact, uh, the city was uh, a place uh, where it became part of Roman Empire. And Mark Anthony made the city a free Roman city. They had sided on the side of Julius Caesar during the, the Civil War time, and they ended up becoming a free Roman city. Those who were born there were born free Romans, no taxes. It, it, it's incredible to think that Paul says he's from there. If we look there in verse in chapter 22, verse um, 3, he says, I'm a Jew. It, it's an interesting word because it has two different connotations. One is that he's from Israel, basically. It, it talks about his nationality. But it also means, uh, it can mean somebody who, who adheres to the Mosaic tradition, to the Mosaic law. And context would determine which one it is. It could be a Gentile saying, I, I'm, I'm Jewish, I'm a, I'm a Jew. And, and all he would be meaning is that he adheres to the Mosaic tradition, to the Mosaic law. Or he could be saying, I'm from Israel. Now, to get a context as to what he's referring to exactly, we'd have to go to Philippians chapter 3, 4 through 5. In Philippians chapter 3, 4 through 5, Paul describes who he is. He kind of gives a resume. He talks about how he was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he's not saying it as a negative thing, but as a positive thing. He was a Pharisee. He was dedicated. He was zealous. Uh, going back to Acts chapter 22, verse 3, he says uh, he was born in Tarsus. He's a Jew, but he was born in Tarsus. And then brought up, well, which has this, uh, he grew up, he, he developed in this city. Now, the this in this sentence is a little uh, problematic. 
and it causes some debate. Because he could be saying, from the point of view of where he's speaking, I grew up in this city, as in Jerusalem. So he was born in Tarsus, but then maybe at the age of 14, he goes to, to Jerusalem and grows up the rest of the time there. That's one interpretation. Or that this could refer back to Tarsus. He was born in Tarsus, and then he grew up in Tarsus. And, but what we do know is the third verb here, he was brought up, but he was educated. That word educated has this uh, notion of uh, uh, being brought up, but provided instruction for how to live responsibly. It's, it's, the, it's the wisdom of how to live responsibly, how to live a life well lived. And he says that he was educated by Gamaliel. Now, that brings us into a problem. Who in the world is Gamaliel? He, he mentions him like we should know who he is. Well, Gamaliel is mentioned in Acts chapter 5, verse 34, and where he is called a teacher of the law. If we look at Josephus, the historian, he talks about uh, Gamaliel, and he says he was the grandson of the great rabbi Hillel. He had the, Gamaliel, he had the honorary title of elder in Israel. And in fact, he, had, he was one of seven, only seven in the history of Israel who had the title of Rabban, our teacher, our teacher. So this is an incredible guy. He's mentioning before the people that he has studied under this guy, Gamaliel. That's an incredible thing. If I were to tell you, professors, I studied under, you'd be like, who? I, I don't know this person. But he drops this name, and, and they know exactly who, who he's talking about. So this is how he's brought up. He's, he's Jewish. He was brought up in a, in the, as a Roman citizen, educated by Gamaliel. And we see that his, his career ends up being that of a Pharisee. Again, this isn't like a, a negative thing, like we're calling him a hypocrite or anything, but he, he became very uh, passionate about the law. In Acts chapter 2, when the, the church started, the Holy Spirit came down, baptized them, put them into the body of Christ, and then they start speaking. At the beginning of the church there, there was just a very few amount of days where there wasn't any persecution. Persecution started developing pretty quickly, and uh, there was the Pharisees that were against them. In fact, uh, in Acts chapter 6, they had to appoint some deacons, and one of the deacons was Stephen, and Stephen starts to preach. And uh, some people form a huge riot because they thought he was talking bad about the temple, giving blasphemy against the temple. And so they bring him before the, the high priest and they ask him, is this true? And he starts going into a whole sermon using the Old Testament and showing how Christ is the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament. And, and, of course, they were just happy about that. And they, they, they had an invitation. They all came forward and they filled out cards and everything, right? No, they got, they got so upset, they got furious. They took Stephen outside of the city and they started to stone him. Before they started stoning them, they took off their robes and they laid it at the feet of Paul. Paul was in favor of him killing Stephen. There are two things to note about the fact of Acts 7 and, the, and Stephen's um, martyrdom. The first is that Paul consented to Stephen's stoning. But the second one is the most important. And that is that Paul was present when Stephen was preaching the gospel. 
Faith comes by hearing. And you've heard the gospel. You've heard the preaching. Now, it needs a little bit of time before he's converted, but he's heard the gospel. In Acts chapter 8, Paul's in agreement that Stephen would have put to death. In verse 3, it says that he starts uh, ravaging ravaging the, uh, the church. It's a word that has the idea of treating badly, mistreating or torturing, causing harm with the intent of destroying. His purpose was to go against the church. He was going to just totally annihilate it. It's, it's kind of funny, the word used there. Uh, he, he's thinking he's, he can squelch this thing. And he's very zealous, I mean, extremely zealous. In chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, he goes before the high priest, and, and he asks for letters so that he could go up to Damascus, 270 miles away. He is so passionate about getting rid of the Christians that he's willing to walk 270 miles to be able to arrest and kill Christians all the way up in Damascus. Kara says, hey, you want to go out to the park? I'm like, oh, it's too hot. I think I'll stay inside. Well, we can ride to the park in the air conditioning of the car. I don't know. You've got to have a lot of zeal to go 270 miles all the way up to find Christians so that you can arrest them. The guy was passionate. But there in Acts 9, he ended up meeting somebody he had no intention of meeting. He, he's there on his way to go arrest Christians in Damascus. And on that road to Damascus, all of a sudden, there was this uh, flash of light. And verse 4 says, And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was persecuting the church. In Acts chapter 1, at the end of the chapter, it talks about that the church is the body of Christ. We'll eventually get that, and we'll look at that in, in its context. I'm not sure when we'll get that. It'll be down the road. But we will get to Acts chapter 1, I mean, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Here, Paul is persecuting the church, and he's persecuting Christ himself. And, and he responds, verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one uh, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. We're uh, in the book of Acts, in the men's breakfast, and uh, I asked the question, what, what was the moment of conversion of Paul? And uh, it went around and around and around for almost the whole hour as to when is the moment that he gets saved. And I presented that the moment of salvation is that moment that he obeys exactly what he's saying to do. And you say, well, he was already on his way to Damascus. Ah, but the purpose was different. Now he's going to Damascus to fulfill Christ's purpose. In, in doing this, he is submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is believing that he was persecuting and he has a mission for him. Now, Jesus then talks to uh, Ananias, and he tells him, you know, uh, I, uh, I'm planning on, on sending you to go get Paul. I need you to take care of him. And Ananias is like, <laughs> sorry, my hearing aid battery was a little bit out. Let me turn it up a little bit. Who, who did you want me to go get? I, I, I want you to go get Paul. I'm going to use him. 
And it says there in verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. A chosen instrument? This guy going around killing people, arresting people? The, the one watching? I mean, you gotta, you got to have some nerve to be able to watch somebody get stoned to death. I mean, you've got to have some thick skin to be able to go do that. And God says, that Jesus says, this is a, a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's, that's the part we usually don't include in the gospel, right? We talk about the streets of gold, talk about the mansions, we talk about the Crystal Sea, and uh, we don't say anything about the, the suffering for the cause of Christ. But he's a chosen instrument. He's going to bear the name, and he's going to suffer for Christ. It had an impact on his life, a tremendous impact that, that changed his life forever. It, it, it's, it's interesting to see Paul's Christian life. As he, uh, he gets saved, and uh, verse... Um, 19, uh, halfway through the verse, it says, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And some think that it was at this time he goes out to the desert and is with the Lord Jesus, and Jesus teaches him. And he comes back and he begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. So this guy who was looking for Christians now is, is preaching about Jesus. And the people are confused, and some people want to kill him. There's a plot to kill him and they're watching the, the gates and they're trying to capture him and so in the middle of the night they have to drop him down over the wall in a basket and he goes and he goes to Jerusalem. He shows up at Jerusalem as we can see um, in verse 26 and forward. He goes to Jerusalem and none of the disciples wanted to talk to him. None of the apostles want to talk to him until Barnabas comes and takes hold of him and brings him uh, to the apostles. It, it's an interesting study, and it's a study worth doing, the study of Barnabas. And, and the influence that Barnabas had in Paul's life. It's not just here where he uh, helps Paul, but later on we'll see also that he has this ministry of going and coming alongside Paul to help him. Well, they're in Jerusalem, they're lo also looking to kill him, and so they go down to the to the bus station, and they buy him a bus ticket and send him off to Tarsus. And off he goes to Tarsus, uh, I guess to go with his parents um, and somehow be safe. All of a sudden, Paul just kind of drops off the scene. We don't hear anything about him. It, it's like he was preaching the gospel, and then he disappears into Tarsus, and the narrative goes on. God's work continues going. Well, we see it through Peter's ministry. He, he has this crazy vision that there's this picnic blanket, and it comes down, and it's got all types of barbecue on it, pork barbecue. I mean, it's got sausages, smoked sausages, and Jesus tells him to eat. He said, I can't eat that. Dates wrapped in bacon, smoked. I can't do that. I, I haven't eaten anything unclean. And he sees this vision, and then the next thing that happens is that the messengers from Cornelius are asking him to come and preach the gospel. 
in chapter 11, there are some people who are being scattered because of persecution. And some people end up from Phoenicia, Cyprus. They end up going to Antioch. And they go and uh, they start preaching the gospel. And something starts happening. Something miraculous starts happening there. It's not associated with any of the apostles. It's just somehow a work gets started there, and the church in Jerusalem hears about it. And they decide to send Barnabas to go up there and investigate what's going on. Luke narrates that he goes up there, and as he goes up there, he sees the work that's being done by the Holy Spirit, and he says, I need help. I need to go get Paul. So he buys a bus ticket and goes on up to Tarsus and uh, opened up one of those phone books and one of those, you know, phone booths, and he starts looking for Paul's address, and sure enough, he finds him. How does he find him? It's incredible. I don't know how he finds him, but he finds Paul, and he says, uh, I need you to come down to Antioch with me. What's interesting is that Paul goes with him and spends a whole year in Antioch. You have to wonder, was, was Paul just playing video games in his parents' basement that he could just kind of turn that off and go and do that? Did he have no, no type of obligations that he had to like say, well, let, let me think about this or anything like that? Luke doesn't narrate any of that. It's just an, an obedience. He is needed down in Antioch, and so he goes. He's there a year. The story picks up again in chapter 13. And we see in verses uh, 1 that they're there in Antioch and that they have prophets and teachers. And then it gives a list of uh, some of the people there. And uh, it says in verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work uh, to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. In our, uh, in our looking at this, it's impossible to estimate the impact that this commissioning service has. All of us, all of us here, have been influenced by this ordination to send forth these missionaries out. All of us here. What size of church could there have been after one year? Do you, do you really think it was this size? Or could it have been smaller? Oh, they must have been a huge church. And probably Paul and Barnabas were like pastor of kindergarten ministry. They, they weren't the main ones, and so that's why they could just get rid of them and send them on because they had a whole bunch of other pastors that were really the people in charge. It's hard to estimate the influence, the impact that this had. I mean, the, the impact that it had was that he, Paul goes on three, at least three missionary journeys. In the second missionary journey, he goes to Ephesus and starts a church, and then he writes a letter to them that we are going to be benefiting from. The impact that this small little church praying, obeying God to send forth, and the people saying, yes, send me, 
had on the world. Does God still do that? Does he still move within congregations to send people out? Oh, no, of course not. We're supposed to just gather people in. No. The fields are wide into harvest. Pray. Pray that God will send forth laborers. We see in Paul, the missionary, that he goes at least on three missionary journeys. He, uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 9, he's <laughs> wanting to go to Asia. He's desperately going to Asia. Try different ways to get to Asia. But in the middle of the night, he gets the Macedonian call. Come and help us. Now, what are you supposed to do with that? I mean, what, what do you do? You get this call, and we need your help over here. Paul could have ignored it. So I can't hear you. He could have said, you know, I believe that God is such a sovereign God that he can work out his perfect plan without me. So I'm going to cross my arms over here and watch him fulfill his mission without me because I believe in such a sovereign God. Isn't that silly? That would be silly. He would have missed out on this. Or he could have obeyed and go. He did. He went. He obeyed. Romans chapter 15, verse 24, Paul said he had a desire to go to Spain. He had a desire to go all the way to Spain, to keep on traveling, to keep on sharing the gospel with other people. Paul, as a, as a missionary, was at times accepted and at times rejected. One time he got stoned and looked like he was dead, and they just left him out there outside of the city. He got beaten a couple different occasions, shipwrecked, imprisoned, and around sometime 64 to 67 A.D. died by being beheaded. Paul wrote, and uh, we have some of the letters here. Some of the letters that he wrote were letters to churches. Some were letters to individuals. Uh, out of the correspondence, we have the ones that were inspired. What's the application of this? Because all we looked at was Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, and the first word. How can we apply this that we've learned about Paul, just kind of looking at overview of his life? I think one application that we see is that God can save anyone. God's power to save is, is unlimited. It, it doesn't matter what you've done. It, it doesn't matter what you are doing. It, it doesn't matter if you think that, well, I need to stop what I'm doing because later on I'm going to be a much better person. God knows all of the sins that you will ever commit. And he has power to save you. And if you put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, his death in your place, you can be saved. Jesus saves us of our sins through the preaching of the word. And he heard the word being preached. The other thing that we see is that God wants a complete surrender. Eugene Peterson uh, described faithfulness as a, uh, a long obedience in the same direction. That was an interesting way of putting it. A long obedience in the same direction. Paul's conversion had a tremendous impact in his life. So much so that when Barnabas comes knocking at the door and says, I need you down in Antioch, he goes. 
He, he goes to Antioch and helps them. And then when the elders at Antioch lay hands on them and say, we want to send you out to other places, places that there's not people who are worshiping and glorifying God, he goes. He, he finds out that there, there's Ephesus. And, and there's no Christians there. He goes and he starts preaching the gospel. God wants a complete surrender. Now many times we want to surrender to God as long as our paths are parallel. If what I want to do and what God wants me to do are the same, hot dog, I'm doing the will of the, God, of the Father. But now if God comes up with some crazy stuff like calling me somewhere, no, I'm not going to do that. See, I've got a plan. I've got a five-year plan, and I've got a 10-year plan, and I've got a 15-year plan. And God better bless my plan. God doesn't want to bless your plan. God wants a complete surrender to go. We're looking at Ephesians because a church sent forth Paul and Barnabas to go preach the gospel. And they went and they preached the gospel. It's a missionary work. Why does missions exist? Missions exist because there are places in the world that do not glorify and worship God. And until Christ comes and raptures the church, there will continue to be a need for missions. For churches to send out missionaries and, and preach the gospel. What should motivate us in missions? It's not the need. If you go for the need, you'll, you'll, you'll get irritated really quickly. You'll try to convince people of their need and they say, no, I don't need that. It can't be because of the punishment either. Well, there's going to be a punishment if you don't repent. I don't believe in that punishment. What should motivate us to go? God's glory and his worship should motivate us to go. We see God to be so great and wonderful that we want to share that with other people. We, we see that God is so great and so wonderful that we say, hey, i got to tell you about God. We glorify God and we worship him by loving those whom he loves. And God loves the nations. God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for us. In fact, it'd be impossible for you to say, I love God, but you have no care for the nations of the world. It, it, it's because you're not loving what God loves. It, it just wouldn't even make sense to say, oh yes, I love God, and you sway your arms back and forth. But you have no care for the nations? It's absurd. It makes no sense at all. Because God loves the nations. Will you please bow your heads and pray with me? Father, I pray now as we think about Ephesians 1, 1 and Paul's life, the impact that a small church had on obeying and sending forth missionaries and Paul going and preaching the gospel, taking the gospel to places that weren't worshiping and glorifying you. Father, first of all, if there's someone here who has never trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, I pray that at the invitation they will come forward and that they'll put their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior today. Father, I pray for the rest of us here We've got caught up in, in life being about us somehow rather than for your glory and for your worship. 
we got caught up somehow in life being about our comfort and our preferences rather than exalting and magnifying you, even to the nations. I pray if there's someone here that needs to repent of that, that they'll come forward and they'll pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you please stand?